so uh, two, two months ago, I have uh, an important meeting with another pastor. It's on the other side of town. Uh, I drive out. I actually took some time off work to, to make this meeting. Um, I drive out, start meeting with him. I'm five minutes in, and I get a phone call. I'm still telling the story, babe. Sorry. <laughs> five minutes in, I get a call from my wife, and she's like, I need you to come now. And I'm like, oh, no, what's wrong? And she's like, the car's broke down. We're stuck on the side of the road. I need your help. And it was kind of funny because we I was just talking to the pastor about how whenever we try to make plans, something pops up, and, and our plans <laughs> never get fulfilled. And so we're literally, we just sat down for like five minutes, and I'm like, hey man, sorry, I gotta go. So I get in the car, I drive across town, I'm wondering what's going on, I get to her, and she's run out of gas. And I'm like lecturing her on this, like, babe, come on. There's a gas gauge, there's a meter that tells you how much gas you have, like, come on, when you hit a half tank, go fill it up. I mean, we, we, gotta, we gotta pay attention to these things, you're putting people at risk here. I'm like, I'm giving her the full lecture, right? So fast forward to Thursday, and oh, our Lord has a, a beautiful and wonderful sense of humor. Uh, we, we are driving across town to get the kids to piano practice, and we get in my car, and the gas light goes off and says we've got like 90 miles. And Nicole's like, we should probably get gas. And I'm like, hon, we're fine. I said, we're short on time. My car is very reliable. It tells you how many miles, we're fine. So we drive to piano practice, we're fine. I wait in the car and don't go get no more gas. I just sit there and wait. We get, she gets back in the car to go home and she's like, should we get gas? And I'm like, we got 36 miles. We're fine. We're good. Don't worry about it. We're about five minutes from the house and the car dies. <laughs> now, let me tell you about how pride works, okay? How pride works is I'm staring there as the car is broken down. It was the night that it got cold, right? So we're, we're on the side of the road and I'm like, is it wrong that I'm kind of hoping something significantly is wrong with this car and we just didn't run out of gas? <laughs> I mean, running out of gas is the best financial option for us because that's $15 to fix the problem. A bad transmission is probably hundreds if not into the thousands of dollars, but there was part of me like, I kind of hope it's the transmission. <laughs> Why? Because I had given her this lecture on it. Now what was beautiful for her in, in retribution was not only did she get to give me a wonderful I told you so, so, but I live very close to my parents so I called my dad and my dad got to come fill us up with gas. And if you know my father, he will talk to you about what you've done wrong. <laughs> And so I got a nice little talking to about Luke. How could you let your family down? How could you put him at risk here? You were raised better than this. I taught you never let it go below a quarter of a tank. And here you are in the middle of the night on the side of the road with three kids in the car hoping that no bad people run into you. So I took all that and I had my humble pie and realized that sometimes you have to be very, very willing to hear things you maybe don't want to hear. 
And I lead into that tonight because as you've uh, been reading through Corinthians, today's topic is a fun one. <laughs> it's actually funny to me because if you look at how many people were at church last week, and now look at how many people are at this week, I think some people read ahead and knew where today's sermon was going to go. <laughs> and they said, you know what, it's kind of cold, why don't we skip this week? All right. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians. We are in a, uh, a sermon series going through the book of 1 Corinthians, and I've entitled this series, The Gospel Colored Glasses. And the reason for that is what 1 Corinthians is hitting home to us, is that as Christians, you have to look at everything in your life through the lenses of the gospel. There are no areas of your life as a Christian that you get to section off and go, God, you don't play here. And a lot of people hate that. A lot of people this day and age, they want to go, you know what, I'll give God my Sunday mornings. I might give him some private time while I'm reading and praying. But I don't need God budging into all my business. And that's just not how it works. God is not your advisor or your consultant. He's not someone that you phone in to help with certain situations. The relationship that God has built with us is one in which we realize, I need a Savior. And I need a Lord. I need a God that I serve each and every day. And He is the one that dictates my path. He is the one that works through me. He is the one showing me the direction to go. And when you live like that, what that means is every single day, every single moment, should be submissive to the will and to the Word of God. If we're not doing that, we're doing this the wrong way. And so as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul address to this church in Corinth that he helped plant a few issues that are really hurting them. The first thing that he talked to is that the church has to be united in the Word. And so as he's been hearing back from Corinth, he's been hearing the church is split and people are arguing about who their favorite preacher is. Some like Paul, some like Apollos, some like Cephas, and there's this argument. And none of it's about serious doctrine. All of it's about style. All of it's about the superficial things on the outside. And so I kind of compare that today about how so many churches these days split up because of music style or worship style. And even those churches that don't break apart, how many of them have you been to where it's only 60 people at the church, but 20 show up at 8 a.m. to listen to hymns, and 40 show up at 11 p.m. to listen to contemporary music? Because to them, it's more important the type of music they're listening to than that the family all be together. And that's what Paul's hitting at. The church has to be united in the Word. And the reason we have to be united in the Word is because of his second point he makes to us is that the church is at war with the world's culture. You and I live in a world that is constantly pulling us away from God. If you watch television, if you listen to music, if you just look at what America pulls people to, it's not in alignment with God's Word. We teach people to pursue money and materialism, power, popularity, sex. All these things are the major motivators of our culture. And none of those align with God's Word. And so the other thing that Paul has been hitting home to the church in Corinth is, guys, you're trying to be worldly Christians. You're trying to be in the church, and you're trying to also be cool in the world. 
that doesn't work. Why? Because those two cultures are going to totally different places. You can't be in both. You will be torn. You will be divided. And ultimately, you'll be unbelievably broken, both in morale and your impact, because you don't know where you're supposed to go. And to be honest, brothers and sisters, this is the feedback that we get from so many non-believers is they look at us and they go, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. And the reason they're saying that is not just because we have different beliefs, but what they're seeing is, wait, on Sunday and at church, you guys say this, but then I watch you all week live and you don't live that way. And it rubs them the wrong way because they go, you know, at least be consistent. At least be somebody that actually stands in your beliefs and lives that way. And so Paul's sitting home with these things. You've got to be united in the Word. You've got to stand and fight against the culture of the world. And the third thing he's been teaching us is, is that the church also needs to be growing and serving. And really, this one is a result of the two issues we just talked about. Because the church is constantly fighting about little things, and because the church is divided trying to be both worldly and Christian, when we look at the outcome, here's what we see. We see a bunch of Christians that haven't changed. They're years into this journey with God, and they are no more knowledgeable about God's Word. They're no more mature in their wisdom, their faith, or any of their skill sets than they were before. How does that happen? Why is that acceptable? Why is it okay to be at a church and you literally know just as little as you did three years ago and no one's looking at you going, hey, that's an issue. We should talk about that. Why is that okay? And so Paul has been driving through these opening chapters of, guys, get right, get focused, get passionate. And now he's going to dig in some detail. Now in chapter 5, he's really going to hit home at some major specific issues that are happening within the church. And these are things we don't like to talk about, but they're things that are absolutely real. They're things that are absolutely devastating to the church. And as we'll see, there are things that are devastating to the culture around us. And so Paul starts to write about a very specific topic here in chapter 5, and let's go ahead and jump into that. He says, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as it does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So he's saying, guys, I'm, I'm hearing back from you, and within the church, a church member is having a sexual affair with his mother-in-law, and you all know about it. And nobody is addressing it. It's common knowledge. It's understood. It's known. And the church is like, eh. And so look at what he says. He says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned instead. So that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I on my part, though absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Listen to this. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and sandalers, or with idolaters, for then you would not have gone out into the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so man, like, heavy passage. Three huge things here that Paul is talking about that we need to dissect, we need to walk through, and we need to understand. The first is this. The church will not stand with intentional, habitual sin. And so let me talk about this one because people get nervous about this. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we will all mess up. Every single day, every single one of us will sin. That's a guaranteed. Sin is us falling short of the perfection of God. Sin is us having thoughts and doing actions that do not align with the Word of God. It is not possible for you and I to be perfect. And so what Paul is not saying here is that the standard of Christianity is you must be perfect. What he's saying is there is a difference between you and I sinning in a moment without intention and in passion versus us living with an intentional, habitual lifestyle of sin. Right? It's one thing for you to hit your thumb with a hammer and say a swear word. Is that sin? Yes, it is. But the difference there is, did you sit out and go, you know what, I think God's wrong. I know God doesn't want me to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. No, in that moment, something impacted you. You reacted in a way that was more in alignment with your old flesh than with the Spirit, and sin came out. And the appropriate response in that moment is to go, I was wrong. I should have done this. This shows there's still growth that needs to occur in me. God, I'm sorry, and I'm going to try to be better. That's different, though, than deciding, I know that God believes we should be married before we have sex. I don't care. We're going to live together. We're going to have kids together. We're going to have sex together. And we're going to basically act like we're married anyway. That's a different thing. Because what you're doing then is you're saying every single day I will live in opposition to his wisdom. What you're saying as you live in that structure is I am guaranteeing every single day I will wake up 
And I will look at God and go, you're wrong. Or, I just don't care what you have to say about this. I know what you want. I understand why you want it. I know you've told me it. Don't care. Going to do it anyway. And so what he is addressing here is when we look at this man who's having an affair with his mother-in-law and the entire church knows it, this isn't some act of passion. This isn't some mistake that happened one night, one moment when emotions were high. This is a habitual, intentional sin. And worse, what's the church doing? Nothing. In fact, what he says is he says, you all boast about it. Now, let's break that down. Why is the church boasting about it? The church is not going like, hey, we have the best sinners in the entire world. That's not their boast. They're not going like, do you see this guy? He's the worst guy you've ever seen, and he's part of our church. Isn't that awesome? That's not the boasting they're doing. The boasting they're doing is they're boasting in God. And they're going, do you see how awesome our God is? This guy's despicable. He's absolutely despicable. And our God still loves him. Our God still cares about him. Isn't our God amazing? And Paul's like, do you not understand what we've been talking about? Yes, God loves him. But for you to turn a blind eye to the sin that you know is happening, sin that you know goes against your God, and to have that happen in the church... That is you disrespecting and dishonoring God the Father. Why? Why? Do not stand for that. Do not stand for that. And brothers and sisters, I know this is hard. Because I'll just be honest with you. I know sitting in the pews today are many people in these scenarios. And in fact, I will tell you that I think one of the reasons the church is declining in America is because we're not addressing these things anymore. We're looking at all the low-hanging fruit. We're looking at things like, how do I become more patient? How do I become more peaceful? How do I handle this situation? I want God's advice on this. When we have huge issues that God has clearly talked about and we're ignoring them. Brothers and sisters, just think about your own relationships. How many of you, if you had a child who was living in direct, intentional disobedience to you, was throwing away your wisdom and your guidance, how many of you would then continue to help them in the small things of their life? How many of us would be like, I'm not giving you more advice. You don't listen to anything I have to say. I have been there for you. I have outlined for you. I have tried to guide you in these big moments. And every time I do, you throw it back in my face. You run the wrong direction. And now you still want me to be here and to be kind and compassionate? Brothers and sisters, the love of God is not weak. The love of God is not weak. We have built a new definition of love that says love is this compassionate acceptance of all. And if God loves me, He's okay with whatever I choose to do 
And he's not going to make me feel bad. He's not going to make me feel guilty. He accepts me. That's weakness. That is not love. And if you don't believe me, look at how you raise your children. Do you know how many times a week my three-year-old son wants to do things that would kill him? I'm not talking about would hurt him. I'm talking about would end his life. Now, if I just went with, well, compassion is I only do what makes him feel good, I'd be like, sure, Jake, go ahead and jump down the steps. You'll be fine. Would any of you watch me let my child play in the street and go, that's a loving father? What a great dad right there that is. You don't look at me and go, why are you being an idiot? Do you not see your child's on the road? Do you not realize he could be killed? Well, I don't want to address that because that could hurt his feelings. If I pull him out of the road, he's going to cry. He's going to feel bad about it, so I don't want to do that to him because I love him. I don't think any person with half a sense would look at that person and go, that's a loving guy. I think we would all go, that's weak. That is weak. You're more concerned about not putting yourself in a difficult position than you are about what really is happening to that person. And Paul breaks that down. He goes, why do we not stand for this? We don't stand for it because intentional, habitual sin kills the individual and it corrupts the church. And we miss that. He says, I would give them over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. A lot of people read that and go, see, he hates sinners. No. In Scripture, we are constantly told that you and I live in a dynamic tension. We are pulled between our sinful flesh and we are pulled between the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We're here in the middle. What we are constantly at war with is who will win, the flesh or the spirit. What Paul is saying is, is when we see someone in intentional, habitual sin and we don't address it, we are allowing them to try to live in the middle. We are allowing them to not see the full ramifications of the sinful actions in their life. And because of that, they're not fully addressing it. So let me give you an example. I was talking to a guy not too long ago, and he was telling me how he just could never see himself getting married. He's like, I, I just can't see it. Like, I don't know that I could love someone like that. I don't think I need that. And I said, hey man, I love you, but can I just be real with you? You're living with somebody, you're getting emotional support from them, you're getting financial support with them, and you're getting physical uh, pleasure from them. Could you see your life living without those three things? They're like, oh no. I said, so let's be real here. You actually can't imagine life not being married. You just don't want to do what God wants you to do. You want to strip away the benefits of marriage that God has outlined. You want to take those and use those, but then you want to push off the responsibilities that are supposed to be tied to those. The only reason you can imagine a life where you're not married is because you've built this construct that gives you the best of what you think both worlds offer. But if you truly respected what God said and lived the way that he did, and lived without sex, and lived by yourself, you would soon realize, I'm not strong enough to do this. I need that love. I need that commitment. I need someone to share my life with. 
It's like, have you ever seen, and this is one of the saddest things, have you ever seen when someone in your family is dealing with an addiction, but they have that crutch that keeps them going? You know that person who is like a high-functioning alcoholic, but they're only that way because they have someone in their life who just babysits them, who always gets them ready for work, always make sure that they look okay in public, make sure that anything that would blow up in their life is taken care of, and they create this world around them where they're able to actually function. And because of that, the addict never sees they're totally lost on their own. Because they have this buffer around them that is protecting them, and sheltering them, they never see the full ramification of their sins. And so what Paul is saying to this man is, put him out of the church, and not because I don't love him. Not because I don't want him to come back, but because until he sees where this road leads, he'll never change. He needs to see that when he lives like this, those that love God will pull away. He needs to see that when he lives like this, he isolates himself. He needs to see that when he lives like this, he's on a path towards destruction. And for some of us, the only way we ever know that is to be allowed to run that way. Paul's prayer here is not that this man runs the wrong way and never comes home. His prayer is exactly what we studied, what, three months ago in the prodigal son that you let him run, that he sees the fruits of living that way and he realizes, I should go back home. I was a fool to think my father didn't love me. I was a fool to think my father didn't protect me. I realized everything I've wanted is emptiness. I'm gonna go home. And the beauty of our God is, you can run the darkest road possible to the worst place possible. And the second you turn around, God goes, come home. I love you. I've been waiting for this. In fact, the prodigal son, right? The father runs to the child, embraces, and celebrates them. Doesn't give him, I told you so speech. goes, I'm just so glad you finally realized. And you've come home. That's real love. That's real love. Real love is a joyful sacrifice for the good of someone else. And in it, it has elements of compassion, but it also has strength and power behind it. And when we strip that power from love and just make it this compassion, we lose that beautiful force that has shaped the world. I'll be honest with you, I hate preaching sermons like this. I'll admit, there's, there's a little bit of a coward in me that sometimes comes to these passages and goes like, I could just skip to chapter 6. No one would probably notice. I could just, just jump over that. But that's not love. God wrote these words because He loves us. And if you ever doubt that, realize He's the same one that died on a cross for us. You know what He'll do for you. He'll die for you. So don't think that he, he says this and takes joy in it. Don't think this is an angry God waving His finger at you going, you terrible person, I hate you. This is God the Father going, I love you. And I will do anything for your good. I'll die for you. I have died for you. 
but I love you and you're on the wrong path. You're going the wrong way. And I gotta stop you, because I care. And even if this makes you mad, even if you don't want to hear it, I can't look myself in the face and say I love you if I won't tell you this. That's what real love is. And the second point he brings up is he says, guys, not only is this not loving to the individual, but it's corrupting to the church. He compares it to bad leaven. You put it in the bread and then it just spreads. It just spreads. When the church sees open, intentional, habitual sin and just lets it sit there, what tends to happen is more comes in. And let's be real, we all know that. How many of us have woken up in a place and gone, how did I get here, and realized it was not a large jump you made to that place, it was one little decision after another little decision after another little decision after another little decision that got you there. I didn't weigh 250 pounds by one day eating one big meal, waking up and go, I gained 70 pounds tonight. It was a pound here, 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 a pound here. And just slowly, that happened. Because I wasn't paying attention. That's what he's trying to tell us. There's a third thing he says here, which I think is huge. He says, the church exhibits grace to the unsaved, but accountability inside. Let me say that again. The church exhibits grace to those outside of the family of God, but accountability to the members of the family. And so it's funny. I think sometimes we actually have this reverse today. I see a lot more of us publicly speaking about sin externally than addressing it within our own church body. Now don't get me wrong, this does not mean that you and I should not say publicly that we believe certain things in our society are wrong. It's absolutely fine for us to do that. It has become more common practice in our culture to believe abortion is not murder. I don't care where I am. If you want to talk about abortion, I will continue to think that it is murder. I will continue to think that it is the life of a child that God shaped and God formed, and we are deciding to end it because it's not convenient. And I understand that there are thousands of ways that that birth can happen, some of them not pleasant, some of them violent, some of them ugly, some of them terrible. But that also was not the choice of that little heartbeat. And that we live in a society now that says literally, seconds before the child is burned, that you can dismember it and kill it and it doesn't count. It's disgusting to me. And I will continue to talk about that outside this place too. Because we have a responsibility to speak the truth. But also, I know this. I know that a lot of those people out there don't know the word of God. They don't know his love. They don't know his morality. They don't know his structure. And so a lot of them, raised in a culture that's taught them that's not murder, raised in a culture that's told them that's their right, that's their choice, they don't understand that they're killing someone. And so as despicable as that act may be to me, I also realize to them, many of them do it in ignorance. And so grace is the place I start with them. Because you know what? I've done some terrible things too. 
If my God was not willing to give grace to me, I'd be burning in hell too. And so to those outside of the church who live away from the Spirit of God, who live in ignorance of the Word of God, we still say what they're doing is wrong, but we still love them. And we still reach out with open arms. That's why I've always hated this topic where people want to say, if you believe homosexuality is a sin, that you hate homosexuals. It's just completely inconsistent. Do you know how many things I think are wrong? I think lying is wrong. I think sex before marriage is wrong. I think cheating is wrong. I think uh, drinking too much is wrong. I think being materialistic is wrong. I think being motivated by money is wrong. Nobody ever comes to me and goes, you hate all those people. Now, there's a lot of people I disagree with things on. doesn't mean I hate them. just means on that issue, I have a different standard of what right and wrong is. And in fact, if you go anywhere in this book and realize what am I supposed to do to anybody, even somebody that we could call my enemy, I'm called to love them. So this narrative that if you and I think differently about what right and wrong is with the world, that means we hate the world, that's just ignorant. That's just silly. It's a narrative being spread to make it feel like Christians hate people. Nowhere in this book will you see hatred ever promoted. To those that are lost, to those that are on the wrong path, you and I are supposed to be a light of unbelievable love. In fact, it's often my goal when I run into people, and I run into a lot of people at work, where when they realize I'm a Baptist minister and, and they work with me, you can tell right away they're not real excited about it. In fact, I've had, I've had a couple employees that I knew like right when they realized that, like they were like, just, oh my gosh, this is a nightmare. It immediately becomes my goal to make those people know how much I love them. I won't ever tell them I don't disagree with them on certain things, but my goal is, is that by the time we've built a relationship, they would go, I may disagree with Luke on a lot of things, but what I will never tell you is he doesn't love me. I know he cares about me, I know he has my best interest at mind, and I know whatever he would do, he was doing because he thought it was right for me. And that should be our goal with anybody outside the church that we meet. Is that they go, man, I, I don't always agree with them, but they love people. They love them a lot. But then notice what he says about inside the church. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. What he's saying is, is that within the church, if somebody goes, I'm a believer. I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I have given my life to him, and I know that he is the Son of God, that he died for me, that he rose for me. He has given me new life, and his spirit lives in me. If someone says that and then goes, but I'm going to run against all of his direction. The rest of this church is supposed to go, brother or sister, we love you, but as long as that's your stance, you are not welcome here. And I get that's hard. I get that's real hard. But Paul's point is, if they're not in that place of ignorance, right? and, th and this is a huge distinction, there's a place where people are where they don't know what God is saying, 
They don't know what God wants. They may not even know God. When people are in that place, we are patient, we are loving, we guide them, we teach them, and we show all kinds of compassion. But once someone has crossed over to where they go, I know exactly what God's saying. I know exactly what God wants. I don't care. That's a different moment. And in that moment, we no longer go, well, I guess that's your issue. I'll let you deal with that. No, in that moment, we go, well, if you want to be part of this family, that's going to have to change. And I know a lot of people hear that and they go, man, that's harsh. And I know a lot of people will actually go, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know a verse. I know a verse. Matthew chapter 7 says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Boom. Solved it. Not supposed to judge. It says right there in the Bible, Matthew 7. In fact, how many of you guys have heard Christians use that? I was watching it. I have to share this with you before, but it just scarred me for life. I was watching this show, and I should have known by the title it was not going to be a good show. It was called Pastors of L.A. A real pastors of L.A. You always know whenever it says real, it's not reality-based at all. Right? And I'm sitting there watching the show, and it's all these pastors in LA talking, and they're talking about this event that they want to do for the city. And one of the older pastors goes, I don't know that our church can work with yours. And the guy goes, Why? And he goes, Well, brother, look, I love you, but you just left your wife because you're having an affair with your church secretary who's now pregnant and you're living with, and I just don't think that you're qualified to be a pastor right now. I was like, that's a really good point. That guy probably shouldn't be a pastor. Right? I mean, think about that, right? Married guy cheats on his wife with the church secretary, gets the church secretary pregnant, tells his wife to leave, has the church secretary move in with him, and then still wants to be the pastor of the church. And I was like, hey, good for this guy standing up for what the, the standard of God's word is. Then sadly, more events occurred. Another pastor looked at him and said, Brother, Matthew 7 says, Thou shalt not judge. And he went, You know what? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have brought that up. All right, we can work together. And I was like, Are you kidding me? Do we really think that's what Matthew 7 means? That you and I are not to judge any action at all. I mean, let's just, let's just test that, right? If I were to walk up right now and go kill Brother James... How many of you here would go, well, can't judge? <laughs> I mean, my gut's telling me that's off. But Matthew 7 says don't judge. I'm pretty sure all of you in that event would be like, uh, we need to address this. I think this, I think this is an issue. I'm going to go ahead and, and put it out there. I think that was wrong. And maybe Pastor Luke needs to be dealt with. I sure hope you would. And in fact, if you read the rest of the text, it's clear what God said. He goes, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. What he's saying is be careful with the measuring stick you use. If I'm going to walk into church and I'm going to judge how much money you gave and decide whether that means you're a Christian or not, be very careful. You've just chosen to make a standard that is not aligned with God's word. Are you sure you want that applied to you? 
And, I, and this is what we see. How many people have seen or have ever felt like being judged at church because you dressed the wrong way, or you said the wrong thing, or you didn't know where to go, or all kinds of small little things where you felt like people looked, put shame upon you? That's what he's addressing there. Is the only measuring stick we use is the word. And it's applied to everybody. If you start using anything other than the word, be careful. Because if you want to nitpick, God can nitpick better than anybody. What he's saying is, the judgment standard is the word. That's the standard. And what Paul's getting into in Corinthians is, is for you and I to see sin flourishing in the church by people who confess to be redeemed and reborn by God and want to be part of the body and not address it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you know how we know this? Brothers and sisters, you don't do this in your own family. I don't know about you guys, but I many times growing up got the speech, well, as long as you live in my house. Did you guys ever have your parents tell you that one? As long as you live in my house, you'll do it this way. That's what God's saying. Look, God's very permissible. People always get this wrong about him. If God wanted to force everybody to obey, he's God. He'd just make us that way. God has always been a God that goes, look, you can go this way, and here's what that awaits you. Or you can come my way, and here's what awaits you. You choose. Right? Think back to the Old Testament. Israelites come to God, and they go, we want a king. Every other country has a king. Why don't we have one? And God goes, you don't need a king. You've got me. And they're like, but we want to be cool like everybody else. Can we please have a king? And God goes, look, if I give you a king, a king will take your money. He will use your young men to fight and die for wars that are about his pride, not anything godly. He will take the very best of your land and you will become his servants. That's what kings do. And they said, we want a king. And God goes, okay, I'll give you a king. They gave him exactly what they asked for. In fact, do you not realize that hell is not really punishment? Hell is really people getting exactly what they've wanted. Hell is a place where God does not exist in any way, shape, or form. Take away everything that represents God. His light, His love, His compassion, His goodness, His creativity, His beauty. Strip all of that away. And do you know what you're left with? Hell. And who goes there? People that don't want there to be a God. God goes, okay, I'll, I'll give you exactly what you want. You want a world where I am not there. The problem is they just don't realize how much beauty is tied to Him. That most of the things we love in this world come from Him. Amen. And so brothers and sisters, this is why... We have to be a family that holds each other accountable. And, and, and let me be clear here. When we hold each other accountable, we do so in love. I so I always tell people, like, if you need to address a sin that you're seeing in a brother and sister, you need to check your heart first. Because I've seen people before where they've always wanted to tell someone a piece of their mind, and they wait for the moment that they do something biblically wrong, and they're like, yes, now I can crush them. Finally got the opportunity. 
guys, God knows your heart. He knows when you're sharing that feedback, you're not doing that because you love them. You're doing that to try to put yourself above them. But if we have a spirit of love in our hearts, then when we see someone on the wrong path intentionally, purposefully, we should tell them. It's why at our church, we have a membership covenant. We have a membership covenant because what I realize is that when you look at the pews, they're full of different types of people. We have people here who don't even know if there is a God. But they're intrigued. And they're learning. And they're growing. And they're trying to understand what does God's Word say? And who is this God? And what is He saying about their life? And how they should live? And how they should work? And when those people are here, I'm not here to get into their business. If they want my advice and guidance, I'll be glad to give it to them. I'll be glad to point them to what does God's Word say. And we have some people that they're a little further along that journey. They now think there's a God. They're really intrigued about the things that He has to say. And they're coming to a moment where they're going, you know what, maybe I need this. Maybe I need this. And then there are those people who are like, been there, done that. I know there's a God. I know what His Son did for me. And I've given my life over to Him. And for those people, the reason we ask them to sign a membership covenant is because that basically gives us the permission with each other to go, hey, we're family now. We're going to hold each other accountable. If I see you going the wrong way, I have your permission to lovingly come to you and go, hey, brother, wrong direction, man. And not only do I have that permission, but I want from you the same thing. I want from you the same thing where if I start going the wrong way that you guys won't just sit there and go, oh, Luke's being an idiot. He should really stop going that direction. I guess we'll pray for him. No, instead you'd actually go, well, he's going the wrong way. We should go talk to him. He's a brother. We love him. He, he wants that. He says he wants that. Let's, let's go. Let's go talk to him and see if we can get him back on track. That's what we want. If you ever want to see what no accountability creates, go get the newspaper today. Lily brought this to me, and I was unbelievably saddened. Front page of the Sanson Express, it says abuse of faith, and it talks about how over 20 years, 700 victims of sexual assault have been found within the Southern Baptist Church. And it talks about how there's this decades of, of abuse that has occurred within our churches. And as you read through the stories, the reason you see that's occurred is so often the people who knew what was happening weren't addressing it. The people who knew what was going down, knew that something was wrong, knew that someone was not living by the word, didn't address it. They just let it go. God forbid that anybody at this church ever allow me to do something that is against the word of God because I'm called pastor. God forbid that we would sit here as a family and ever see somebody running the wrong way and us because we don't want to have an uncomfortable conversation not address it. Accountability keeps us on the path. Accountability fights off sin. And what we got to realize, all sin is, is death. That's all it is. It's death and darkness. 
And so when we fight it off, when we push it away, when we uncover it and we rip it out of our hearts, we're not doing that because it's fun, but we're doing it because we know that all it brings is pain. Most of these cases, you should read it. Most of these cases, what happened is people knew what was going on, said nothing, or tried to cover it up. And instead of just using what God's Word said. And so, brothers and sisters, as we wrap up, I know for most of us, this isn't a fun one. And to be honest, if it's, if it's one where you've been listening this whole time going, glad that's not me, you should probably look at your own life and just double check. Right? Because Paul addresses the big ones here. Right? He hits home with the sexual issues because often those are the ones that are all consuming and the most obvious. But I know many of us who have intentional habitual sin on a much smaller scale. Maybe it's been gambling, maybe it's been alcohol, maybe it's been lust, maybe it's been an inappropriate relationship, maybe it's been materialism and power, maybe it's been pride. But some of us, we've accepted uh, something in our lives and God, I'm just going to be this way, that's who I am. And we know that's against God's word. There's no room for that. Know that as he delivers this message and know as I say these words, I know they're not easy to hear, but they come because I love you. I truly believe our God's wisdom and our God's laws are here to give us an abundance of life. They're not here to restrict us. They're here to give us an abundance of life. Uh, to me, I feel like the disciples, when, when Jesus preaches this unbelievably difficult sermon, about how you need to, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. You remember that? He's talking about how you can't just take the physical things of this world. If you really want to experience God, you've got to internalize it. And he looks at his disciples. He goes, I know it's a hard message, and I know a lot of people have left. Are you going to leave too? And they go, where else would we go? God, we've tasted life with you. Where else could we go? We know you love us. We know you protect us. You know we watch over us. And so even though this is hard, we know you do it because you love us. There's that trust. And so I encourage you to take these words that God shares with that understanding. Well, they're harsh. They're the same words from the same God who died for you. He says them because He loves you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Holy Father, we come before you today, Lord. We come before you, Lord, understanding how holy you are. And that, Father, as your children, as your people, as those who say your spirit lives within us, we have a responsibility to be holy like you. pray that as your word speaks to the people in this room today that they will hear what you're trying to say to them. That they will understand you are love. And even as you say things that maybe hurt our feelings or say things that convict us that we need to change, you do so not to shame and guilt us 
but you do so because you want us to experience life like we never have before. Father God, thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. Thank you for loving us enough to show us the darkness in our own lives that needs to be corrected. Father, I pray that this is a family that loves each other truly. A family, Lord, that will sacrifice for one another. A family, Lord, that do, will, will do what is right for one another. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we submit ourselves to you. In the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Brother Joe to come to the front with me. Brother James to be in the back with, uh, with Matt in here. If there's anything on your hearts that you need to pray about, anything on your hearts that you just want to know someone else knows about and is, is praying to God for guidance on, feel free to come forward. As always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up now, seek us out afterwards. We are here to, to be with you, to pray with you, and to help you along your journey. Maria. Let's all stand and turn to page 307, page 307.
Who's ready for some cake? <laughs> it's uh, birthdays and anniversaries today, so uh, after service, we want you to stay. Uh, we want you to hang out and fellowship with us. We're not only celebrating the birthdays this month, but we are also celebrating the beautiful new baby that will be coming soon. Uh, as Sabrina and Matt are awaiting their baby girl showing up. When's the, the end date? The 27th for sure? Now, I don't think Sabrina wants to wait that long, so... I don't think she'd mind any prayers for the baby to show up earlier. Um, but we are going to celebrate that beautiful baby girl. Guys, what I love about being a church family is if you do it right, it really is a family. It means we divide each other's pains and we share in each other's joys. And we have strength not because we all sit here and sing songs. We have strength because we have a God that pulls us together. And we have strength because the love and the strength and the wisdom and the vision that this whole church has now gets applied to each individual member. And so I encourage you in these moments to stand strong, to stand united, and to stand in love that brings us all back to where we belong, which is at the feet of Christ. Right, let's go ahead. Maria, you want to sing for us here? We're closing on this. I'd like to say uh, <clears throat> thank you to everyone. You did five years, five and a half years ago with my mom. Uh, and then this past week with my dad. The outpouring uh, was a witness to my family. Uh, there was so much food and so much love uh, that was shown. And I know it's through the love of God and His family. And uh, I just want to thank everyone for being a witness that my family needs. James, it was our honor. And uh, well, while we're at service, our focus is always to glorify God. But we realize that God shows us His beauty through how He uses people. And while some of you may not always know the journey, the sacrifice that James has shown and the sacrifices that he made to take care of his father over these last years. Are an unbelievable testament to the strength of God's love. So James, we thank you. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by His blood. Joined us with Jesus as we travel this on. For I'm part of the family, the family of God. Amen. Let's have some fun.